Oh, the shape that will get. If you've let all the fans down. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I love playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicci, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. Yeah, I answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! I suggest you shut up and show more football. Well, it all looked to be too good. Ronaldo had scored his third goal in two games and it looked like a routine win for Manchester United when upstepped Aaron Wan-Bissaka, who was sent off for a tackle. You get a pat in the back for in Rio Ferdinand's days. Ferdinand, who of course played just 10 years ago in the Premier League. Welcome along to Team 33. It's Champions League week in the world of football and there's plenty to talk about with Osha McQuarrens. Hello. Hello. How are you, Andy? And Jack O'Toole is with us as well. Jack, how are you getting on? Not too bad, Ender. Not too bad. Thanks for having us on. So a fair warning to our listeners and our viewers. If I make a weird noise or a weird face, it's because we're recording this at 6.14 on Thursday and Celtic are currently 2-0 up against Real Betis in the Europa League. Juranovic just scored a penalty. So if there's a goal in that game, I can't promise that I won't make a reaction. So that's just a fair warning to anybody who's watching or listening to the show. We're going to talk about the Champions League tonight, though, because the Europa League is still ongoing, so we can't really react to that. West Ham are 1-0 up, as I currently speak. Mikel Antonio scored there. No surprise that he's the one that gets West Ham's goal in their return to Europe. But we'll start with the Champions League results from the week. So it was pretty routine wins for the teams from England in the Champions League, bar Manchester United, who lost 2-1 to Young Boys. Young Boys, that's one of their one of their only ever wins in the Champions League at this level. Chelsea, 1-0 winners against Zenit St. Petersburg. Liverpool, 3-2 winners against AC Milan in what was a really good game on Wednesday night. And Man City, 6-3 winners over RB Leipzig. Jack Rilish announcing himself in the Champions League with a goal and an assist in that game. Another notable, notable results, I guess. Barcelona getting absolutely hammered by Bayern Munich, 3-0 at the Nou Camp. So that's a sign of where Bayern, Bayern Munich are and a sign of where Barcelona are as well, especially. We'll start with a 2-0, 2-1 win for young boys over Manchester United. I mean, it all looked to be just too good, as I said in the intro. You know, Ronaldo had come to the club. He'd, you know, fired them to a win at the weekend against Newcastle. He scored again, the opener in, in this game. And it would have been a, a pretty substantial, you know, pretty handy win for Manchester United. They were in control of the game up until the point of Aaron Wan-Bissaka's red card. I don't think we need to debate the validity of that red card. Um, I, I think we need to debate the validity of Rio Ferdinand's comments saying that you would have got a pat in the back in his day for making that kind of tackle. I mean, it, that was a red card in any era of football. Yeah, well, I don't know what day Rio Ferdinand <clears throat> thinks he's in, the 1920s or something, because that's a red card. Like, it was quite clearly a red card. I mean, he stamped that. Like, he caught him He caught him flush. It could have, to be fair. It's one of those actually could have resulted in quite a bad injury. I, mm. I don't think man even went off or anything like that. I think he was all right. But, oh, every day of the week, that's a red card, definitely. Um, excessive force, I suppose you could say, as well as the boot being up and out wasn't too full. But, yeah, it was just, it wasn't a poor touch, I think, from Ambasaka. And then he just kind of lunged in. And, and yeah, changed the game fully, completely changed the game. I mean, as you said there, like, it's a different game if that doesn't happen. Like, I, I watched the end. You know, they were pretty comfortable. I, to be fair, the young boys, I thought they actually looked quite lively. Your man, Elia, or uh, Elio up front, he was quite he was quite lively from the start. Yeah. You kind of looked and you thought, maybe if like they get something on the break, they could catch United here a little bit. But then when Ronaldo scores, you're thinking, ah, yeah, this is just going to be a stroll in the park. And you might see you might see Bruno getting the score sheet. You might see Sancho get his first goal for United, things like that. Ronaldo probably bag another. And you're just kind of thinking, yeah, it's going to be pretty, pretty run of the mill. But again, completely changed. United went fully into their shell with the 10 men. Um, young boys came out of it as well. The atmosphere helped too, to be fair, um, which seemed like it was pretty good in Switzerland. So, yeah, it was a pretty disastrous night, all things considered for United, really. And then the problem is, then you look at it and you think, is this like just a one-off? You kind of look at it and you go, well, they've started the season so well, really, unbeaten in the league, blown away teams, blew away Leeds, blew away Newcastle, essentially. Like, if the, if the, if the red card doesn't happen, probably blow away young boys, not a big issue. Or is it a case of this is something that kind of exposes the tactical flaws maybe that are in Solskjaer's game because I don't think he managed that game at all. Well, really, as soon as the red card happens. So I think for United, it's going to be interesting to see what happens now in the next couple of weeks and and how is there going to be like, is there going to be blowback from that result? 
in the sense that I know there has been a good bit in terms of the narrative of Solskjaer is like his naivety and things like that. But I think they probably need a good result now at the weekend to to get themselves back on track because I think that's quite a big blow, and especially in the in the context of the group, I think it's I still think they'll qualify probably handily enough. But I mean, it's not how you want to start the Champions League, especially when you've got like this squad of players that is on paper exceptional and has added one of if probably maybe the second best player of all time to it. Um, yeah, not the ideal start for United at all. Yeah, young boys are supposed to be the gimme in this group stage, really. Like, if you're looking at Villarreal, beat Manchester United in the Europa League final last year, and then Atlanta, who are a very, very well-coached side in the Serie A. I mean, they're one of the most exciting teams to play in Europe over the last couple of years. So it's it's definitely not um, absolutely guaranteed that Manchester United go through in this group stage, but the reaction from the United setup to that red card is more interesting than the red card. Oli, of course, after the game, give out about the referee said that he didn't uh, pretty much said that he didn't have the bottle to give Ronaldo the penalty that you know give or take is a a 50-50 penalty at best but um, if you're looking at the reaction from Ollie in a tactical sense he brings on Varane goes to a five at the back three centre backs two wing backs and then basically just parks the bus for the rest of the game and United have two shots on target in the entire game, their worst ever tally in the Champions League against the side from Switzerland who have only ever won, I think they're less than five games in the Champions League they've ever won. So, I mean, Jack, if this is Man City, they're dominating this game regardless. If this is Liverpool, they're dominating this game regardless. If this is Chelsea, they're absolutely not conceding two goals after going 1-0 up. I mean, it's real... It was real negative stuff from Ollie and it was surprising, I guess. Yeah, I thought so. Like one of the things that stuck out to me was the fact that they had less than I think thirty percent possession after the red card. Um I know obviously they're playing against eleven uh with ten men, but you still expect with a team of that sort of quality that they'd still, you know, go and get a second get goal and kill the game off. Um you've just got the feel for Donny van de Beek. Like of course he gets in and then immediately he's kind of like pulled after the red card. Um and as you said there yourself, like they go with five at the back and obviously the idea is we'll let young boys attack us and we've got enough quality on the break here that we should be able to go grab a second goal and kind of kill this game off. And it didn't happen. Um, and the uh, the irony of the fact is the, all the hoopla regarding Ronaldo and, and pretty much justified by what we've seen against Newcastle, albeit, you know, a very forgettable day for uh, for my friend Woodman. Um, it, you couldn't... Like, all of a sudden, like, Solskjaer is put in this real situation of Ronaldo's probably the least likely to do running against 11 men, uh, but he's also probably the least likely to get taken off the pitch as well. Uh, I even seen when he when he came off, he wasn't exactly trilled, and that was in the 72nd minute. I mean, could you imagine the upheaval if he came off after the red card, you know? Yeah. So it's it's obviously when it came to sacrificial lambs uh they didn't get any higher than donny van de beek i suppose for Solskjaer. but yeah like i don't know like i do get the substitutions and there's a lot of criticism over them from there but and i suppose they did have a, like a lot less possession but ultimately like the goals that they conceded i do think that's kind of football in a way like a ball's whipped into the box it gets a nick on it and it's too quick for the keeper and the second, regardless of tactics, formations, or whoever's on the field, it's just an atrocious back pass that just mm. gives a player the opportunity to score. So while I find the fascinating soap opera, and it's a bloodthirsty soap opera with United as well, like when, when one game goes off, it's like all of a sudden the Solskjaer out, uh, the mob starts getting their torches lit and ready to go. Um, where I think ultimately I do think it is a blip because I I just look at the nature of the goals conceded and I'm like that's that I don't know maybe the first one you can say look maybe that's a result of of sitting back the entire time and maybe something like that's going to happen but the second one is just eleven ten nine men that's just it's it's inexcusable I suppose so mm. that's how I viewed it. Yeah, it's the the sort of immediate reaction to. Con- like Im- immediately bl- lay the blame at the door of of Solskjaer here that is quite an interesting one because when he does good he seems to never get credit for it 
because you know it's always the the team behind him that that get the credit and then when he does bad it's immediately all laid at, at his door so it comes with the sort of the territory of being an inexperienced manager at the helm of Manchester United I don't think he ever received the respect that a, a, you know a, a Tuchel would have received at Chelsea or whatever but I guess the biggest issue I have with this and I raised this on the podcast last week was so Ronaldo comes in and and there's loads of different strands to the Ronaldo transfer, but I, I I did a poll on the off the ball Twitter account and at halftime of that game, Ronaldo has, had scored the opener and it asked the question, if Ronaldo finishes the game with two goals, but barely touches the ball, barely does anything else in the game, did he have a good game? So if he scores two goals, but doesn't do anything else, does he, did he have a good game? Overwhelmingly people said yes. So, that's where you're at with Ronaldo at the minute. He is a player who is not going to contribute to your games, but he will contribute in the best possible way with goals. So do you leave him on the pitch to get that contribution, that one contribution that he's going to give you? Or do you bring on a player who's going to contribute elsewhere on the pitch where you badly need it down to 10 men? I get Where United really lacked, though, was control of the game. And, and that comes into the Ronaldo transfer as well. I don't understand why they went for the big money, I know they got Ronaldo basically for free, but the big money move for Ronaldo on his contract, the the big name up front, for no particular reason, they didn't really need him. Instead of going for a CDM to play the number six role, who in the games like this, that you need to control the possession, you need to control the pace, you need to control everything about what happens in that game, they didn't have one on the pitch because they don't have one at the club. They have Fred, they have McTominay, they have a 40-year-old Matic. That's what they have at the club at the minute. And it, uh, Of all the transfers that they've made with Ferran and Sancho, they, they all made sense. And then they went out with this ludicrous Ronaldo transfer. And that's where I have the issue with it. I just don't understand why they decided to go for that instead of the position they clearly blatantly need. And now they're going to lay the blame at the fact that they don't have that player rushing. Ah, look, it's difficult, like because when you get offered Ronaldo, it's very, very hard to turn it down. If you get offered Ronaldo and you have the financial capabilities to do to take it, it's very, very difficult to turn it down. I think mm. when they look at and, and United have often been guilty, I suppose, and the owners have also often been guilty of looking at United as a business and not a football club, and that's just modern football. But like when you look at it from a business perspective as well, you have probably the most marketable one of the most marketable footballers on the planet. Yeah. You're thinking, yeah, every day of the week I want him. And and it's not like he's going to be a net negative, really. He, I mean, he's going to score goals, but I get what you're saying in the sense that he doesn't he doesn't solve a problem that they have. He adds to their mm-hmm. team, but he doesn't solve a problem. <clears throat> and then you kind of go, well, if he's not solving a problem, is he worth bringing in? So I get you in that sense, but I, I, I think it's very, very hard for, for a team like, you know, and as well as that, I think if it comes out that if he, if he goes to City and the chance was there, comes out, the narrative comes out that the chance is there, the chance was there for United to bring Ronaldo back and they didn't pull the trigger on it, that's there's the, the blowback on that is going to be serious. So I think yeah. it's I think it's challenging. I think there's no question about it, but I think I think they're two separate issues, the Ronaldo thing and the defensive midfielder thing. They should have bought a defensive midfielder anyway. Like take Ronaldo out of the equation regardless of like they, they needed one of them from the start of the season or the start of the transfer window. Do you know what I mean? They didn't just suddenly need a defensive midfielder two days before the window ended. Like, that should have been the priority. Okay, Varane's a good sign, and they, they definitely needed a centre-half uh, beside Maguire. Sancho was, was coming regardless. They, they were going to get him. Like, they needed, well, they need him or not as another story, but they were going to get him. They've been pursuing him. At the start, then, like, how a defensive midfielder is not identified amongst those two signings early on is beyond me. So, I think they're probably two separate issues. And I don't know that, like... I'm on the fence in a sense. I, I can fully, fully understand how why United would sign Ronaldo over defence midfielder, but you still need a defence midfielder. And you needed that months and months ago. So I think it's it's tricky. I think it's tricky. Yeah, well, the, the word is they're going for Declan Rice next year and that'll solve everything. But the, the question I would ask, Jack, is... So the look, I, do, I don't actually doubt that Solskjaer is a decent coach or whoever he has there is is a decent coach in, in some way or form. I think the evidence to prove that is how far Luke Shaw has come under this system and other players that have improved, the likes of Rashford and Greenwood. But should they not be able to solve this issue with the players that they have? I I, I just feel a higher level coach comes in and looks at this squad that they have and, and says, 
yes, okay, I can work with this, no problem, and figures it out. Like how Tuchel took Lampard's defense that was absolutely shambolic, and within weeks, he turned him into the best defense in the league, the best defense in Europe, and won the Champions League. It just feels like Solskjaer, who I think has proven a lot of people wrong in the sense of how bad people thought he was as a manager, I think he is capable of managing a Premier League club. But a top six club, I would have my questions about now because of his record in the Champions League and then his his record against the bigger teams. I know he's able to pull off big results, but sustainably they're not able to do that. And I just feel if Tuchel comes in, if Klopp comes in, if Pep comes in, Pochettino maybe, maybe even Conte comes in, within six months, this team are proper Premier League contenders. Whereas under Solskjaer, I think it's always a hope that they will soon become that. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I, I, I just think like, it, 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 so much of this goes back to Ferguson and the post-Ferguson era then from there, right? So like for me, it goes Moyes, Moyes doesn't work out. So they go back to back, they go Van Hal and Jose Mourinho. Then they go, let's get the proven winners. And then it didn't work out with either of those things. Van Hal, one degree. Jose, not really surprising when we see kind of how it's three years and out at every single club he's at. And it, it always leaves in smithereens. Um, United being no exception. So then they go complete 180. They go, right, let's go back to our roots. People that, you know, quote unquote, know the club. Um, and Ollie being one of those. And then they start going, let's go back to youth and we'll buy Dan James and the like. And and they start going in a kind of different direction then from there. The idea being that like Solskjaer comes in and is the immediate substitute teacher of, oh, geez, everyone can breathe and relax now that like, you know, we don't have Jose throwing up fingers in the middle of press conferences demanding respect. Like it's or, you know, making a show of Paul Pogba training. It's just and so they go on a tear from there, obviously kind of highlighted by the famous win in Paris. And. All of a sudden then, but then when you look at the squad still, to a large degree, I think so much the Pogba criticism over the last couple of years is because for a while there, Pogba was looked at the talisman, right? Where it's like, and he's not that type of player. Like, he's thrived in squads like you see him now, where he's probably, what, the third biggest star now in that United team? Same with the France team, same with the Juve team. Like, if you just drop Pogba on Leicester City and we're like, all right, go win a title. It'd be, it'd just be unrealistic. So when they start getting Bruno, who's obviously, I think it's Cantona-esque, the, the kind of effect that he's had. Um, and then you, you add Sancho and Varane to that mix now. Now you've got like a legitimate squad uh, that can compete for a title. The Ronaldo point, as, as you know, kind of Oshim was alluding on, um, to me, as he said, like if it leaks out that City, that United could have, got him and the city get him instead uh that's going to cause anarchy and you're talking about a club where they literally got united liverpool fixture thrown off because of a pitch invasion last season and now all of a sudden ronaldo's in and then avram glazer's there in the stands with big smiles on his face you know so there is an element of that avram you know doing the conor mcgregor strut back into the stadium after bringing uh viva ronaldo through so like i think ultimately now like, look, they're a David De Gea penalty miss away from winning the Europa League last year um, in a game they probably should have won. Um, they've no excuse not to qualify from the Champions League. And really, with this squad, they've no excuse not to win a, a, some sort of trophy this year, if not go very close to the title. So that's how I view it. Whether Solskjaer has the chops to do that. This is the ultimate season. If he doesn't, I think he's gone. But in his defense, as you said there, Look at Harry Maguire 12 months ago, where he was after the whole, um, you know, nightclub incident and a couple of howlers for England and, and how kind of solid he's been over the last 12 months. That Newcastle game getting skinned by Almiron, withstanding. Um, but Luke Shaw, Greenwood, Rashford, like there's been proper development of players. So that would be the pro Ollie side. The anti Ollie side is United have spent half a billion over the last five years and, and still haven't won a trophy so it's, it's a very interesting uh, topic to say the least yeah ironically if he was the director of football you know he would, it would be an amazing job the squad overall that he's done in the last uh, three four years before we finish up in United one hypothetical question that came up last night in the news round which is quite interesting from Ronan Mullen the powers shift at United now that Ronaldo's there with Ollie. So before Ronaldo comes in, 
Solskjaer is by far and away the most successful player or person at the club. You know, he's 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 been there, done that, want to travel. No no player in the in the team has done remotely what Ollie has done for uh, their clubs. And then suddenly you throw Ronaldo in there, who's won the Champions League for United, won multiple leagues for United, won the Ballon d'Or while at the club, and he's back now. Probably the most powerful man at the club right now. Could he get Ollie sacked if he wanted to? If, if if let's say things aren't going well, Ronaldo sees this as his last couple of years, his homecoming at the club that he made his name. Could he get Ollie sacked and get someone else in? Do you think he has that much power? Probably, probably does. It, it, it's that kind of that kind of that thought process is very reminiscent, I suppose. Like it, it feels very NBA style, kind of LeBron James when he first went to the Cleveland Cavaliers. I don't actually know who the coach was, but he ended up essentially getting him sacked and then Ty Lue came in and they won the championship. So it kind of feels like he, he is that he has that star power. Like Ronaldo is on the same in the same stratosphere as a LeBron James. So if you look at it from that perspective, definitely it's something that could happen. And I feel as though yeah, I feel as though Ronaldo's the like Ronaldo's the golden goose really, isn't he? Like Ronaldo's that's the one. You know what I mean? Like they 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 essentially tried to move mountains to get him this season. And as you said, Jack, like it's kind of it's uh, it's kind of eased the pain of uh, the the United fans and Avram is kind of looking at it as as like here's kind of okay here's a peace offering it's only the best player in the world that kind of thing, um so I'd say if if Ronaldo wants it if it's if it's Ronaldo or Solskjaer, I think I know which one the Glazers are gonna choose if it if it comes down to it. Yeah, Jack, what do you think? Yeah, I wasn't thinking LeBron as as much as like the Corleone Godfather dynamic. <laughs> where I, I think like is, does Ollie become like the Fredo Corleone, and then you know like obviously uh, Fergie is still like the VO, the aging VO, and there's clearly like a power vacuum for for Michael or in this case Ronaldo to kind of step in and kind of like take control of the club. Um, yeah, it could be interesting because while he is the most like accomplished in terms of well accomplishments uh as a player um there is a sense that he's very much still improving as a manager um and you just imagine that like ronaldo is the loudest voice in the room um if the, the whole man united dessert stuff is anything to go by this week uh where it literally now people are like looking at his plate and it took you know the signing of ronaldo for them to cut out fries and cheeseburgers and custard uh yeah, like it, that, that kind of immediately, I know it's completely trivial as dessert, but it does kind of show the immediate influence he has there um, within two weeks. So, yeah, it, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see. Um, but I, I think a lot of this is depending on results. And to be honest, I think a lot of this is depending on the Champions League. Like they're, they're down to the, the young boys, although what many think should be the whipping boys of that group. Um, they like if he qualifies i think everything will be gravy this will just be a complete overreaction you know united hysteria uh if they don't I, yeah i think it's he there's no real excuse not to qualify from the group stage for the type of squad they have yeah that dessert story ollie was very quick to to do that down a little bit he in the press conference afterwards when he was asked about it he basically said you know it's not as if we've been eating chocolate brownies every every day after our dinners well well you know the the leaked dessert did come out the leaked menu came out a couple of months ago off the united team out for for mm. dinner together and you know there was plenty of desserts on that that list i'm pretty sure that luke shaw had ice cream and brownies so you know he needs to keep oh, on that he needs to keep my whole thing and ollie down playing that what does lee grant have to lose in this situation oh, like the good. ancient third choice goalkeeper potentially prepping for a media career here like i i don't i don't have reason to doubt lee grant there no no, I, I think I, I I believe the story. I just think that you know they're probably they're probably on a fairly set menu, but they are eating desserts, so it's it's interesting. And you know, Luke Shaw, who's who's going to deny Luke Shaw in the form that he's at a, a chocolate brownie at the end of the day? You know, Not he me. has to keep his energy levels up. Anyway, that is Manchester United in the Champions League. They will no doubt be a talking point going forward. We do want to talk about Liverpool and a little bit about Man City. Not so much their performance, but more their their fans' reaction to Pep Guardiola's comments today. So we'll take a quick break, and after the break, we will touch on all of that. Stay tuned. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Now you're welcome back to Team 33, and a call here with you for the next half an hour or so. Joined on the line by Usher McCurns and by Jack O'Toole as we run through 
the Champions League week, week one of the Champions League group stages. Manchester United lost to Young Boys 2-1. We've covered that in the first half of the show. Liverpool were dramatic winners, 3-2 winners against AC Milan. Reminders of the, the Champions League uh, classics between the two of those sides in the mid to late noughties. And Man City, 6-3 winners against German side RB Leipzig, a thriller in the Etihad for that one. We'll start with Liverpool, guys. I guess this was a, a big win for them, especially considering the fact that they went down 2-1 to AC Milan. Jordan Henderson's going to a lovely winner in this game. But I want to touch on Mo Salah because he's been a, a talking point over the last week or so, scoring 100 goals in the Premier League. I guess there's a lot of talking about whether he's underrated and whether he's, you know, part of the Thierry Henry, you know, Dennis Bergkamp, these great names of the, the Premier League years, whether he's up in that echelon. But it got me thinking because clearly Mo Salah has been an ex- exceptional talent over the last five years in the Premier League. But I think I think he's gotten himself into a weird situation here where he's so underrated that he's now become overrated. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because this happens to a couple of players where they're, they're really, really, really good. Don't potentially get the credit they deserve for three or four months because, you know, there's other players doing their stuff. Bruno, for example, doing it at Manchester United. And then suddenly people start talking about them as if they're criminally underrated players and almost do them up better than they are. So I guess that's a very clunky way of asking, where does Mo Salah rank in terms of his quality in the Premier League? Jack, you can take this one. Yeah, he, he definitely is underrated. As, as someone that took Harry Kane first in a 11-man fantasy draft over Mo Salah, <laughs> I'm certainly feeling just how uh, underrated yeah. Mo Salah is. Um, no, he's exceptional. I do, I do think it, it kind of ties into... I suppose just the narratives around football and football transfers. So, like, what I mean by that is, like, oh, it's all like oh, 97 million on Lukaku coming to, to Chelsea. And he, he, look, look how, like, that's the goal scorer. He's the missing piece they, they need. And look, that's not wrong. Like, but what I mean is, you know, Jack Grealish, 100 million to City, that becomes the focus. Ronaldo, here comes, you know, the, the prodigal son back to Old Trafford. And, in the midst of it all, it's like Liverpool haven't really spent anything. Like, I know they brought Canada in, but their own fans are, you know, in turmoil. Uh, basically, who are we signing? Who are we signing? And and uh, just the whole punditry as well. Like, you've just seen, like, guys like Graeme Souness and the likes over. Like, oh, if you don't go out and spend and rebuild your squad, you're, you're going to get left behind. You can't keep pace with the rest of these teams. And it's just like this team got decimated by injury last year. Like, they had Reese Williams and Nat Phillips and, like, playing centre-back. They'd know that Jordan Henderson and Fabinho starting centre-backs uh, last game. They just, like, they had a horrific run of injury. And now they're back full strength. And when they were back full strength, they, what did they go? They had plus 90 points in back-to-back seasons. Won one Premier League and won a Champions League in the other. And they're looking like the team that... Uh, that that had that now like obviously the depth is going to be a question when you kind of look past the first 11 with them but if they keep everyone fit and Klopp isn't like an, an, a pep or a tushel in the fact that he rotates a lot he generally sticks with the the main kind of core players and um, the key the key parts of the team so I, I think with all that said Salah's greatness is kind of it's kind of lost in the mix, but I mean, like you just think like that Leeds goal that he got. I'm sure you watched it, Oshin, a, a couple of times. But like he, he initially the ball probably he's expecting he's expecting the ball to kind of be played through, and it doesn't he doesn't kind of get a return pass. And rather than just throw his hands up in the air, he just repositions himself, and Trent whips it across, and he gets a nick on it, and it goes in. And I think that's just like the greatness of him. Like it's it's not really him rampaging on the wing on a counter-attack and beating someone and sticking it in the top corner. It's just, the guy is just like a complete footballer. Like he, he, he rather than throw his hands up and say, I didn't get the ball, he just repositions quickly and gets, gets it on the second go. I just think he's, he's uh, yeah, he's utterly phenomenal. And um, I, I think, yeah, he's the linchpin of that Liverpool team, probably along with Van Dijk. Yeah, the transfer issues with Liverpool is an interesting one because, I mean, the transfer window has become a competition in itself for especially online supporters as opposed to... I wouldn't, I wouldn't say match-going fans are too entrenched in the transfer window, whereas I think the online support is absolutely insane about it. But Liverpool can't act like Chelsea. They can't act like Man City for obvious reasons. Their ownership model is completely different. That doesn't... You know, that's not washing FSG's hands off the 
the furloughing situations and some of the issues that they had, but they they can't act the same as a Russian oligarch or a, a state-funded uh, oil club. So Liverpool just can't rebuild the same way that Man City and the same way that Chelsea can do. But I think Klopp's done an exceptional job here because he, you know, he rode the storm of last year. They managed to squeak into the Champions League and now they've got their full squad together back. Diogo Jota is obviously a good addition to it. And the likes of Curtis Jones coming through is, I mean, I thought he was exceptional against AC Milan. I thought he was such an ex- exciting player to watch. Oshin, uh, do, you, do you have Liverpool as title contenders this year? Are they, are they going to be able to sustain this? Or do you think they've lost a little bit of what made them special in that two years, three year stretch? No, I think I think the only thing is the only thing is squad depth. That'd be the only little thing. I, I still don't even think that's a massive, massive issue necessarily. Now, it's easy to say when you consider injuries haven't really played that much part this season. Harvey Elliott obviously is out, but that I actually think that will be quite quite a blow because I think Liverpool were going to kind of lean on Harvey Elliott quite a bit mm. this season in probably a number of positions because he is that versatile. I know he's in the A team, but he's that versatile that he can pl- he can probably play a number of different positions in the midfield or out wide if they need it. So like you look at who they've lost as well, like Shakiri gone as well. Like you, I mean Shakiri gone doesn't necessarily seem like that's a massive loss really when you look at what he's contributed but like he's always there for squad depth and for me that's the only thing that will that will stop them because against Leeds they were superb they they were by a million miles a better team and a couple of times I watched them against was it Norwich and I think Burnley as well because they drew a Chelsea yeah they were both of those both of those games as well they just blew those teams away even last night they were by far like now in fairness to Milan they they brought it back so I don't know how Milan went 2-1 up in that game because I think Liverpool had like 11 shots in the first 15 minutes I was watching this and I was like this is this is next level yeah absolutely flying it so for me the only thing is just that kind of squad depth if they had two or three more players you say if they had two or three more like High level. If they have two or three more players who are like on, say, someone like Shakiri's level or Curtis Jones's level in that squad, I'd say without a doubt they're second, third favorites probably to win the title. But mm-hmm. I think it's a long season, and like the fact that they're in Champions League as well, like you mentioned it too, like Klopp doesn't rotate necessarily. He can't rotate really, can he? I mean, when he brings players, he tried to do it last night. Brought in Origi, he was fine. Didn't do that much. Van Dijk uh, was on the bench, and like. They almost lost that game. And you look at it and you go, okay, well, AC Milan, like games of the past, European giant, nowhere near the same AC Milan team as before. Nowhere near. They're not even close no. to me, as good as what they were. And I think they showed that last. I didn't think they were any, like, I didn't think they were that great, to be honest with you. When they went, they went to an open. I couldn't, I, was, I couldn't believe they went to an open. I was like, I, I, I'm not really having Milan here. And then obviously Liverpool went on to win it. But the only, yeah, the only thing is that that little bit of squad depth that will stop them. I'd say, I mean, now obviously it's like Chelsea and City are both going to contend too. But the only thing that will stop them from being in and around there is probably that squad depth. And if something like mm-hmm. last season happens where they get injuries to a catastrophic level, then they're in big, big trouble. Because last season, they were able to, okay, they were kind of able to cope with it. They still got top four. They brought in makeshift players. They made it work, which actually is a testament to the clock when you probably think about it, how well they did with such a makeshift team. But if that happens this season, I think they're even lighter than they were last season and they could mm. be in real trouble. But as we're going now, it's 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 gone well. Well, that's the thing about the Liverpool situation is that up until last season, everyone was saying that they were a Van Dijk injury away from a disaster. And then it came in the form of a Van Dijk injury followed by a Joe Gomez injury, followed by multiple other injuries that you know were real issues for them. But I guess, again, not to bring this back to Manchester United, but that, that sort of... Uh, Reminds well, me. To bring this back to Manchester United. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, yeah I'm not, not not to bring it back, but I'm going to bring it back. What I was saying about Ollie earlier about his coaching and his ability to change things in the, you know, the the situations that he needs to change them. Klopp was faced with his main, the best defender in the world, out for the year. His partner out for the year, playing a centre mid, a centre back, midfielders Thiago coming in being injured. Firmino getting injured, Salah being out for a while, Allison being being away for for different reasons, and he still finished top four. Regardless of how they got there, they got there in the end. They got to top four. You're just thinking, what happens Manchester United if you know um, Harry Maguire is out for the year, and that's followed by Victor Lindelof being out for the year, 
that's followed by Paul Pogba being out for a prolonged period. That's followed by, uh, let's say, Ronaldo this season being... United are not finishing top four, and I think that shows you the top-level coaching, what a top-level coach can do, and Klopp has proven himself for the last 10 years that he is an absolute word-bitter of a coach. And I think, yeah, Liverpool, Liverpool for me, they're not title contenders this year. I think Chelsea are just unstoppable at this point, but... And that's that's only what three weeks into the season, but it's a long season. I I, I don't think Liverpool have the squad depth, like you said, to sustain it over the last uh, last fifteen weeks of the season. Let's move on to Manchester City. There's a couple of things I want to talk up, talk about before we finish up, so we won't spend too much time on this. But it's just kind of a funny story, I guess. Um, Pep Guardiola has found himself in a bit of hot water, I guess, if you want to call it that, with the 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 club supporters club. Uh, basically, Klopp had a a statement out or a, an interview where he, he he essentially begged people to come out and watch Man City play football. Um, he said, "I would like more people to come out to the game next Saturday. Uh, we will need the people next Saturday, please, because we are all tired. I invite uh, our people to come out next Saturday, three p.m. to watch the game. Um, when's when's the Man City game on, Ashin? Um, I don't know. They're playing Southampton, aren't they? I know that yeah. anyway." Yeah, that was a, that was a three joke o'clock that, on Saturday. That, I think. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a joke that just oh. did not land. He he said oh, he said Saturday, but and <laughs> what I was doing, I was thinking of other things that Manchester City could possibly be, fans could possibly be doing at three o'clock on a Saturday. I was like, yeah, they're yeah. probably wallpapering their house, maybe washing their cars. I was like, what could they possibly be doing? I don't know. Not watching Man City anyway, like no, for, yeah, like do you know, do you know the the meme on Twitter where you're like, uh, they they say that you know if if you want to come out, I'm free on Saturday when I'll be. Free. <laughs> yeah. Next Saturday, that was Pep Guardiola's. That that, that that was Pep Guardiola's interview. But essentially, he's begging people to come out and watch Manchester City. You do you know times are bad when you've just spent a hundred million on Jack Grealish and you have to ask your fans to come watch the game. I mean, I know people make fun well, of Man City for this exact issue, but I mean, this just shows you what a joke this- of a club Man City are at times when it comes to you know the level of support they get for the quality of side that they have. It's amazing. That the manager has to ask people to come. But is this, is this not uh, why they went after Grealish and Kane in the first place? Is to try and like build this, you know, domestic following. Like go after the England captain and I suppose like this generation's David Beckham is to try and increase this whole, you know, domestic support. Because I was only looking there on my phone to see what the attendance was. I think it was 45,000, which is still 10,000 short of the capacity. But I was thinking about it earlier today because I was talking to about, the, you know, the whole pep press conference, basically trying to invite everyone over to the Etihad for a barbecue uh, <laughs> of Southampton as they get turned upside down. Uh, but, like, basically, I was looking at it and I was like, when you often hear the Gallagher brothers being the two kind of most famous city fans talk about the buzz of main road and, and you know, the main road days and stuff like that. But that was 35,000 of uh, capacity and the Etihad is 55,000. And it just shows you that even with this whole kind of sports washing city, you know, basically building a super team over the last decade uh, to go and assault every single competition, it doesn't actually translate to increase 20,000 fans. Where if, if you go across the other side of Manchester, it's a 75,000 sellout every time. And what I was thinking of is this, it's not the only sport that this has happened in. So recently, for those that kind of follow basketball, the Brooklyn Nets have assembled like probably one of the best teams that's ever been put together. They've got Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden. So they're like three top 15 players in a league where there's only five people on the court at once. And they probably would have won an NBA championship if they didn't lose Kyrie Irving and have James Harden come off a, a hamstring injury. Um, they were one shot away. And, or getting to the finals anyway. But, but before that, basically, they bring this team together in Brooklyn and they have literally these guys do promos asking them people to come to the games, come to the playoff games. Where, by comparison, the New York Knicks have been a joke and a laughing stock <laughs> for 30 years. And they get to the playoffs for the first time in like eight years with a team that's a scrappy kind of, you know, ragtag bunch that aren't expected to do anything and ultimately get blown out in the first round. But the, the tickets for Madison Square Garden sell out within like three minutes flat. And it just, it just, it just shows you there's more to than assembling super teams that 
put bums on seats as much as people follow players now and they're not they're you know they're Ronaldo or Messi fans as opposed to Madrid or Barca fans there there is a sense that the culture and the the history of a club does actually kind of carry more weight than than maybe what some of these organizations think yeah look I'm not I'm not looking to insult any Manchester City fans who you know, are actually, we already had the Watford fans and the Brighton yeah, fans. Yeah, the Watford fans and Brighton <laughs> fans. Oh, are so I, I, I don't want to insult Man City fans here, but I was at the Etihad a couple of years ago for the um, the Arsenal Man City game. And I mean, it's a lovely stadium, but I, I bought my ticket for Man City Arsenal three days before the game happened. And this, I mean, the, the, I, I just shouldn't have been able to do that. That should have been virtually impossible for me to do. But because of the because of the size of the stadium, where it's at, it's far out from the city. And I guess it, it sort of reminds me of the argument around the Super League is that, you know, you had these quote-unquote legacy fans as the Super League referred to them as. And a lot of people were saying, oh, this just shows you clubs don't care about the fans. And I guess the argument then arose was, are these fans that important? Do they even need them? Do the clubs even need these fans? And uh, the answer is yes. The clubs absolutely do need these hardcore base of fans because if you don't have those, you're left with people who are coming into it and the atmosphere, the product is weakened because of that. And Man City just seems, it. The, my experience that he had was people who were out for the day enjoying themselves without really having one section that was proper hardcore fans who were there every single week you know it just didn't seem to have the the same um sort of draw as old trafford did so it's it's a weird one for man city they can they've because they have they've had success so you just wonder maybe in 50 years time will that success stand them in the same stead as manchester city's success in the 90s stood to them yeah but like uh, everything they do just irks me like they like just in terms of like from from a football perspective if you just give, like, say, Brighton a billion pounds over the next decade, like, City have done, from a player acquisition point of view, they've hit on all aces. Like, they, they really have. But all the other stuff they do is just tin pot. Like, we start with the jerseys, right? They got the watermelon jersey and, like, the double-decker jersey. Then you go on that whole aquarium thing where they basically, like, they have, like, this exclusive club, and it's like you go at dinner and you get either the wheel-in an assistant coach or a legend to give thing, and then you get brought down to the tunnel where you look at the players like zoo animals. And then, like, they bring in the statues. The statues they bring in of company and silver, tin pot. Like, the the video that they have of celebrating with the league where it's like, if you like your team, stand up and clap your hands. Like, everything they do is just, like... It's just off, and it's just yeah. Do, do you know what? I, just... Can I can I just interrupt? Do you know what it is? I wouldn't exact. I wouldn't call it tin pot. I would call it PR from people who don't understand football. For people who think they know what football fans <laughs> want, but it's just one big marketing bollocks, and nobody can identify with it at all. And it's just like from the from the player, like they've just gone Pep. We just have divine trust in you. That part they hit on. And every other kind of part of building a club and, and building some sort of like authentic feel, this is why they have their manager out begging for people's fans because everyone's just looking like the, like the jersey they have looks like straight out of pennies. That one they have like it's like oh, that's that's Puma's fault though. In fairness, that's- but still, it's another example of like a long list of stuff that they just like they completely whiff on, and it doesn't detract from this view that most people have, which is this is just like you know, a, a sports washing, brainwashing exercise uh, for football domination. Yeah, sounds like a very masterful plan there. Anybody who was listening to the start of this podcast and wants to know how Celtic are doing, especially if you're listening on the radio and you want to know how Celtic are doing a, a day late, they're currently 4-2 down, having been 2-0 no <laughs> in the first half. So it's good. It's, I, I think I held my tongue fairly well over the last 30 minutes. Celtic conceded goal after goal. After goal, after goal. So, God knows what what score this is going to end up. But Celtic were two 0 up in the first half of the show. <laughs> now they're four two down against Real Betis in the Europa League. Um, I guess before we finish up, there's one more thing I wanted to touch on. Uh, there was an article on the Guardian by John Davy, which was quite interesting, and essentially asking it kind of ties into the Man City thing. What as a neutral, who would you support now if you could support any team? Uh, who would you support, uh, Oshin? I know you have to go, so I'll let you uh, have the first choice here. 
if you were to start all over without Leeds being an option to you, who's the most uh, the the team that draws the most attention to you in terms of what they do on the pitch, off the pitch, and the sort of the feeling you would get from going to watch them? Probably Liverpool, I'd say. I I think maybe Liverpool. I I couldn't United no, Chelsea and City. Well, I can't do City. It's definitely not City after we've just been giving out about them for the last twenty minutes. But Chelsea are just too. Nah, Chelsea aren't. I feel like Chelsea are still one of those. Like they're a great side, but they. I mean, you know where their money comes from, and they're not not a club of massive. This is going they're going to get slightly crisp, but not a club of massive tradition really. Whereas you look at a club like Liverpool, you think, yeah, like the atmosphere at the stadium is pretty good. I mean, seems like it anyway. Like Klopp is a very likable manager, got a lot of likable players. And um, they had that nice, like a drought is always good. If, you, if your team has a nice drought, that's always a good thing uh, to get behind. They had that with the Premier League. They have Salah, Mane, Firmino, probably the best. They had the best front three in the world for a couple of years. Probably not, not quite at that level now. But yeah, I probably would have to go with Liverpool. Um, I think other options. I don't even know what other options I'd go for. Like Spurs, nah. Spurs are a bit, nah, nah, not Spurs. Not going Arsenal, and then the rest of them just that's the, the city. All right, the the Manchester clubs can't do that, and then that's that's about it. Leicester City would be kind of interesting, maybe, maybe. But like, if you're going to start sporting now, you've already missed probably there. But like, they're not they're not winning the league, yeah, probably. So I would say probably yeah, Liverpool was when I when I read the article, Liverpool was the first one that that immediately said to me, and that was the. In terms of league title wins over the last few years, that's probably the one that I kind of was happy for. The rest of them I was a bit nonplussed about. Even the Leicester one, I was kind of like, eh, whatever. But I think I'd probably go with Liverpool. But I think it's it's an interesting debate to have. To be fair, mm-hmm. right, Oshin, I'll let you go. Thanks for joining okay, us. Guys. Thank you, Jack. Do you want to jump in with your choice? Yeah, probably. I was thinking about this earlier. Like, it's like I view this as like two two kind of spectrums. There's one that's like obviously the Premier League is going to be the one that draws the eye and that's going to be the biggest sports league in the world. So if you're going to pick it, watch that a lot, you might as well pick a team in it. And from like, a, maybe like a football manager type of mode where you're looking at like, I really, I really, he's kind of, you know, taking a dump on Spurs, but I kind of like what they've done coming from the Martin Yall and White Hart Lane days into this huge stadium and Champions League final. And, you know, there are, they're a relevant team, um, at least a team that can contend or look like they can contend for a top four, maybe not this year, but over the course of the last decade. Same with Leicester City. Um, but for me, just like, the more I kind of think about this, I just think Bohemians. Like, I, I do think there's something more natural about... Because there is the, the element of, by far, the Premier League is the best product, I think, across any of the leagues. But there is an element of football fandom, which is like going to the game, the chipper in the corner at Daily Mount, having its kind of 15 minutes of fame. Um, you know, the, the Bob Marley murals, the fill in it, the history of having Daily Mount Park hosting, you know, those concerts and, uh, you know, Irish Irish games in the past, the Irish Italy games, like the home of Irish football. Like There is that sense of having a proper ground and, and being able to go and support your local team. They're not going to make the Champions League. They're never going to probably make... They might not play in the Europa League. I think they're in the Europa Conference. Like Maybe that's a shot. But it's more of the success and the, what's on the pitch is, is almost secondary to just the experience of being able to meet your mates and, and or you know the kid going with his dad and, and that type of stuff. So I think I'd, I'd encourage people to, to kind of enjoy that experience um, because you can, you can be both. I think you can coexist. Even if you're a United fan, you can still be a Bose fan. You don't have to spend 500-odd quid and get the hotel and the the plane and the, the match ticket over and the, the scarf like you, you can I think they can coexist yeah I think that's a great point um, I, I I just assumed yes we'll be going for Premier League club so I that, it's a nice surprise I, I've actually got the experience this year I know I, I, I would say that Bose are a team that I have a very soft spot for because you know Daily Mount's a really good uh, stadium to go watch football in and it's just a really good club I've had the experience of supporting a relegation battler over the last few years with Finn Harps I gotta say it's thoroughly enjoyable it's thoroughly enjoyable because I mean I I was up at the Shamrock Rovers game and the St. Pat's game the Mm. last couple of weeks ago not expecting anything you're expecting you know just a a nice tight game 
might nick a, a goal to to draw it. And you go up and uh, Ollie has taken in the line uh, another two yards from where it was the week before. <laughs> And, and you know Tunde Olawabi, who's who's playing really well for them this year, it, you know bullying the Shamrock Rovers defenders and just nicking nicking goals here and there, scoring really good goals and winning those games. The, the feeling you get supporting yeah. a relegation club coming up against those bigger teams is indescribable in comparison to to supporting a team like Manchester United, who I also support. You know, it's it's a different type of sport. It's a really interesting way of watching football, but. Yeah, League of Ireland something that I would encourage on everyone without being too preachy about it because I don't think that helps either. Yeah, no, it's 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 basically, and you do see different levels of it. Like there's there's you know there's you see the new even the Newcastle ultimately got battered on the weekend. There was that sense when they equalised and their fans are absolutely going nuts. Like we're going to spoil the United homecoming or the running around our homecoming here. Like there were general general real atmosphere there from that. And because they the reason they're celebrating so much is because they know they should be getting played off the park by United, and ultimately they did. But for a moment there, for a couple of minutes, it, there was pure hysteria there. And in terms of like a League of Ireland point, like yeah, there's there's just some stuff that you see that like you just like as much knocks as it get, there is a novelty. Like I remember seeing Keith Long looking for his car keys on the pitch one time, you know, <laughs> walking around in a preseason game in a housing estate, basically. It was, again, just Bose fans just like emerging from the shadows, like just five minutes before kickoff. It was like there were 10 people there. And then all of a sudden there was like near a thousand, 2000 people. And I was like, Oh my God. Like, but it's a proper tribal following, like, you know, and it's, 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 it's people's club. And I, I think this is what you, what you do see with, you know, the likes of the United and Manchester and, and these type of clubs that spawn off, you know, AFC Wimbledon after Wimbledon gets moved from their hometown. Like the, the football club is ultimately the community, um, but it's not. But then again, I just spent half, you know, 15 minutes ago knocking City apart for being the, anti- the antithesis of it. So like the, it's a funny game there there seems to be room for both the uh you know the billion dollar conglomerate and also the the local team starting back up and going through the pyramid so it's um yeah there's there's room for all it seems yeah exactly jack O'Toole, thanks very much and uh, thanks for having us all right so that's us done on this week's team 33 thanks to you as ever for listening if you want to listen back to that show or any of the team 33 shows you can get them as always in the otb podcast network the best place for that is the otb sports app if you haven't downloaded it yet what are you at that's where you get all the off the ball content the video the podcast and all the articles as well it's very easy to download and get all your off the ball goodness in one place we'll be back again same time same place next week but until then take away johan Oh